Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage that's on our website. If you're watching on YouTube, come on over to the analysis.news. You can make a donation there. If you're on a podcast listening, podcast platform, same thing. Facebook, podcast, come on over to the website. And uh, this is the first time I've told anybody this, but we have a $10,000 matching grant that a viewer just wrote in saying they would like to offer. So if you donate in the next little while, it will like double your donation. Uh, so thanks for joining us and be back in a second. Everyone that follows American elections knows it takes 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. It's not the popular vote that wins it, it's electoral college votes. If it were a direct election, there wouldn't have been a President Trump. The whole system is undemocratic, established to allow a kind of steering of election results if the mobs and democracy gets out of hand, that is, out of the hands of the elites. As conservative pundit George Will said a few years ago, elections are for deciding what section of the elites govern, not whether the elites shall govern. And according to our guest, the Electoral College may also have been introduced to reinforce white supremacy. He says the Electoral College also greatly increases the possibilities of fraud and uncertain results and thus more post-election crises. While Trump is doing whatever he can to create such a crisis, the results of the 2020 election does not seem in doubt. But without the pandemic, it could have been otherwise. And who knows, maybe the Trump shenanigans aren't over yet. To talk about the current situation and the history of election crises and what should be done about the Electoral College is Alan Hirsch. He's, a, he's the author of A Short History of Presidential Election Crises. Thanks for joining us, Alan. My pleasure. So first of all, start with the current situation. Is there, in fact, an election crisis going on with these various lawsuits? Or is it kind of Trump theatrics? And, and, and in reality, this election is over and there isn't really actually a crisis. Well, whether there's a crisis or not remains to be seen. But if there is one, it's not an election mm -hmm. crisis. The election was actually administered extremely effectively and it produced a clear winner. So this is not my idea of a crisis. The president seems determined to manufacture a political crisis, which worst case would morph into a constitutional crisis. But again, what I call an election crisis is when after the voting, we don't know who won, in particular, when we don't have a reliable mechanism for determining who won. That's not the case here. We do know who won. Well, let's just break down the current situation just a little bit more. One of the possibilities. It seems a little bit uh, far-fetched at the moment, although a few days ago it didn't seem quite so far-fetched, is that the Electoral College could be manipulated by Republican-controlled state legislatures or Republican governors. Um, it doesn't really look like that's going to happen, but what, what might that look like? And then does Trump still have any possibility at least from a legal point of view. So Article 2 of the Constitution does give state legislatures the power to determine the manner in which the electors in their state will be selected. 
And that thin reed is what the Trump legal team has been hanging their entire case on. They say it's up to the legislatures. You can have an election, but it's not up to the people. It's up to the state legislatures. The problem is, and I tried to emphasize this with my voice, the Constitution says the legislatures shall determine the manner in which electors are selected, not that they will determine the electors. And they already did that. They provided in all 50 states and the District of Columbia that the electors would be selected by a popular vote. That's happened. For the, election, for the legislatures to now substitute their own slate of electors would require them finding essentially that there was a failure in the election. There was no election, or I suppose they can claim that it was marred by fraud, but the Constitution doesn't envision the legislature just saying, we don't like the way this election was run, in particular, we don't like the outcome. It requires that they stand by the method that they proposed, which in this case was an election. So I don't think uh, that avenue is likely to prove fruitful for President Trump, but it hasn't stopped him from trying. So is the only real gambit here that might work? And again, from a political point of view, I don't see it happening. Most of the pundits don't seem to think it's happening. But if a few state legislatures did this, and let's say it does eventually, it gets to the Supreme Court, but that would take, I would guess, some time. I don't know. This is part of my question. Could they simply delay the process? So it gets past, what is it, a January 6th date where it's supposed to be certified? Like, could they find a way to manipulate this so it actually goes to Congress to settle? Because they think in the House, again, another piece of craziness, in the House, it gets voted on per state, each every state having its own vote, in which case the Republicans would actually control the House, even though they don't control the House. What a cockamamie system of elections. Anyway, go on. Well, right. So to unpack that a little bit, the Electoral College meets on December 14th. And barring some crazy shenanigans, they will certify, each state will certify its electoral votes, and that will give Joe Biden 306 electoral votes. But Maybe things get muddy. Maybe some slates, states do what you're suggesting and the Republicans try to submit their own slate and so forth. The official votes for president are recorded on January 6th, exactly as you said, in front of a joint committee of the House and Senate. Now, you raised the question, could things be unresolved by that date? Theoretically, it could. In the election of 1876, things were certainly up in the air by January 6th. And then exactly as you said, were that to happen, the, if no candidate has a majority of electoral votes, and if things are unresolved, no one will, the election is thrown to the House of Representatives, which just as you said, they vote by state, which means Trump would win if everyone voted along party lines. But at this point, I think this is an ac academic exercise. Uh, we've told you how the system will work if it fails, if it breaks down, but in reality, Things are going to be resolved on January 6th, if not long before then. And that's because of the politics of it. It just doesn't look like the Republican Party and the various state legislatures are ready to have what would amount to a kind of a coup against the vote. And that just doesn't look like it's going to happen. And, and I agree. I don't think it looks like it's going to happen but it could because the system is so bloody weird. Right. And there is another piece to this, which is going on even as we speak, which is the Trump campaign is filing lawsuits all over the country, throwing enough against the wall and hoping something sticks. I think they've won one out of 26 so far. 
But theoretically, if they could have an election overturned or the results changed in litigation, they could change the, uh, the relevant mathematics in the Electoral College. But I think that is at least as improbable as our scenario where the, the monkey business takes place in the state legislatures. Okay, so let's assume that's right for now, and it, it looks like it. And there's the sort of noise sort of coming out of the White House is that he's getting ready to leave. Um, and I, I think the main tactic he's following, which I think is a very smart one on his part, is that he just keeps himself being the center of attention. Uh, he doesn't want to go into obscurity. He wants to launch this media empire in all likelihood. He wants to he wants to remain the leader of this 71 million people that voted for him. So the more the longer this takes and the more every newscast starts with his face, he's winning. At least he's winning some, some weird kind of objective. Well, I would just add to that if he convinces those 71 million that he's a winner and not the loser, that's that all the more cements their ties to him and his claim on the 2024 Republican nomination. And I don't think it should be underestimated how many people think God chose Donald Trump to be president. I was watching a, a, a Christian prophet, evangelical type. He, he's actually of Indian origin, but he's called a Christian prophet. And his name is, I think, Sabu or something. And apparently this guy has a fair following. His YouTube video I watched had about a 1.5 million views. And this was before the election. And, and this guy is saying that in a trance, he was invited to go to heaven and talk to God. No, I'm not talking metaphorically here. He literally says he was invited to transition to go to heaven and talk to God. And God told him that his choice for president was Trump. I mean, I think that's a kind of exaggerated form of how this happens. I would guess most religious people who voted for Trump, they're not that they're not crazy, at least not crazy like that. But that said, uh, yeah, he's going to convince people that this must be the work of the devil. Uh, it, a lot of this is in religious framing for a, quite a number of people. Yeah, it does certainly appear that there is a cult surrounding the president. And you know, religion is outside my bailiwick, so I'm I'm not going to comment on that further. But the I do think he strengthens his hold on his voters when they are convinced he was cheated out of the election, and that certainly seems to be part of the PR battle that he is waging. Okay, let's go back to why the electoral college and why there even is an electoral college. Uh, and your comment in your book in the introduction, where you say one of the reasons is the defense of white supremacy. So talk about the Electoral College and why do you think it's a, it has to do with white supremacy? Well, we can't separate it from the notorious three-fifths clause, which counted African-American slaves as three-fifths of a person for apportioning how much representation each state would get in Congress, and therefore the Electoral College. Um, and in fact, people like James Madison, who was a Virginian and a slaveholder, although the father of the Constitution, he wanted slaves to count for a full person because even though they were property, it would help the South if slaves counted because it would bolster their population. They settled for three-fifths, but that was still a way of them gaining greater representation. And you know the linkage between. Oh, so that's the reason for the three fifths is to add more electoral clout to the south. Exactly. 
Um, and you know, when it suited their purposes, the Southerners would claim that blacks were just property. And when it suited their purposes, they said, no, count them, they're people for the purpose of the census and apportionment. We know that that period was shameless in, in, in that hypocrisy. Um, but the Electoral College did serve to strengthen the Southern states, and therefore it de facto served to protect slavery. But you know, obviously it survived for reasons unrelated to that, and it still has very serious problems completely apart from its ignoble beginnings. So why Electoral College and not direct vote? I mean, lots of republics that followed the United States in the American Revolution have direct votes of, of different forms, but they are direct. Some countries have proportional representation. Some have ranking. Uh, United States has this thing that almost seems to come out of the Roman Empire or something, or the way they choose popes. Well, I think you were right when you speculated at the outset that this was a way of distancing the masses from the selection of the president. It would, there would be this intervening body, the electors, and they would exercise their wisdom. And somewhere along the way, actually, it didn't take very long, but it became accepted that electors would do what the people of their state told them to do. They were the occasional, very rare, faithless elector. But basically, the people do elect the president. Now, these days, one of the main arguments you get for keeping the Electoral College is that it enables small states to have some say in the process. So if you picture it, California has, I believe, 75 times as many people as Montana. If we had a popular vote, would candidates ever go to Montana? Would they ever go to Vermont? Would they ever go to these places which are tiny? But when you give these states at least three electoral votes, so now Florida is only, or sorry, California is only, let's say, 25 times as populous in the Electoral College as Montana, now there's some incentive for the candidates to pay attention to the entire country. The problem is this argument is just empirically ridiculous. Candidates today, they don't go to Montana or California. They go to large states primarily, but swing states. So if you happen to be lucky enough to live in one of the 10 states which could go either way, that's where the candidates will pay attention. Um, so that argument for the Electoral College simply fails as well. It's obviously undemocratic. You know, a person's vote in Montana counting three times as much of a person's vote in California is very difficult to defend even though supporters of the Electoral College will go through hoops to do it. But all of this is an argument that's been made forever, and however strong the argument may be for abolishing the Electoral College, it doesn't win for political reasons. The small states love the Electoral College. But in my book, I try to make a new argument for, the, uh, for abolishing the Electoral College, which I'd like to think should appeal to anyone, small state, large state, Democrat, Republican, and that is the Electoral College is a recipe for these crisis elections. It is a way of having elections which turn on a few hundred votes in Florida in 2000 instead of a popular vote which Al Gore won by 500,000. And we see that result throughout history. Rather decisive popular vote wins, or at least clear popular vote wins, are converted into these razor thin margins in the Electoral College which could be subject to recounts, could be subject to fraud in the future, to hacking and so forth. So it would be safer. And I just, I understand the logic is that when you give individual states so much clout because of the electoral college, 
very small margins can swing a whole election. Absolutely. Whereas if you had a, a national popular vote, it's very unlikely to have, you know, sometimes even just a matter of hundreds that could swing it one way or the other. And it's first past the post. I mean, if you win 10 more votes in the end, you get all the electoral college votes, which is another piece of ridiculous. Totally, totally ridiculous that in Florida in 2000, they're doing recount after recount. They're trying to do what one writer called measure bacteria with a yardstick. There was no way of knowing who won that state. The only thing we know is they each got about 3 million votes. And so the person who almost randomly gets declared the winner by a few hundred votes after the last recount gets all 25 electoral votes. Is there any logic to that? Yeah. So one of the reforms you're suggesting is a kind of proportional electoral college. So if it's if you're splitting a state in the popular vote, you got to split the electoral college vote. If we're going to have an electoral college, it makes a whole lot more sense that Bush got 13 and Gore 12 in Florida than all 25 going to Bush. Absolutely. And I think the reason we're talking about how to reform the electoral college is the 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 rational thing is get rid of the electoral college if it's actually going to be a democracy. But to get rid of it, you got to do that through a constitutional amendment, and all the smaller states are going to say no. But there's an interesting initiative you talk about in your book, which is that some states have actually passed their own laws within the state that the electoral college votes would be determined in their state by the national popular vote which is actually kind of doing an end run around. I'm assuming these are like a, something like enough states have already signed pledged to this for like 170 votes or something. I assume these are bigger states. What, aren't there enough bigger states to get over the 270 mark and do this? Well, it, it, you explained it well with one tiny correction. These are not just state laws. This is a compact among the states. Because if one state passed its own law simply saying that it would uh, follow the national popular vote and cast all its electors in accordance with the national popular vote, that state would be um, reducing the power of its own state unless other states did the same thing. So this compact- well, if, all the if all the big ones Right. Did. So the compact is, is just what you said. You need a, a combination of states totaling 270 or more electoral votes. That's it. Once you get that, if they all honor that compact, whoever wins the national vote will win in the Electoral College. Just as you said, you'll essentially have abolished the Electoral College just without calling it that. And I have not done the math as to exactly how few states could reach the 270, but it's well under 25. You're exactly right. If the largest states in the country, it's something like 11 or 12 states could do it if all of the largest states band together to do it. At this point, there's another factor mitigating against it. It's not just small states that don't want it, but Republican states don't want it. Because as we saw in 2000, 2016, and again this year, the Electoral College favors Republicans. However, that's transient. That may not be the case next election, two elections from now, three elections from now. So it sure makes sense to me that everybody look to the good of the country in the long term and not the short-term benefit to their party or their state. Um, we'll see if it happens. I mean, I can imagine the Democrats control, I would think, most of the really big states. And I suppose Texas and Florida, which are now kind of more up for grabs than anyone ever thought they were, on the other hand, still mostly Republican. And I, I can't see why Texas and 
at the, at this stage of things why they'd sign sign on to such a thing. And then California, but, but if all the big states that support the Democrats do it and had 270, what do they care whether Florida and Texas do or not? If it were that easy, Democrats would be winning in the electoral college. If if you had blue states that's, you know, this year to get 270, Biden needed Arizona and and Georgia and so forth. Right. So it's it's tight. It's not impossible. And it's certainly a lot more likely for the Electoral College to be effectively uh, eliminated through this backdoor means than it is for a constitutional amendment, which requires three fourths of the states. So that isn't likely to happen anytime soon, that that reform. Um, but you're also making other arguments for at least how to change this process because of the, the possibilities of fraud and other things. And not the kind of stuff Trump's talking about, but 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 you know, if you have a very close election in a state and it does get manipulated because of the electoral electoral college votes, it could change the whole outcome, uh, even if the popular votes all the other way. Right. I propose something which seems to me to be a good common sense measure that no rational person should oppose, and that is a presidential election review board whose mission is to resolve election crises or disputes which would be tripartisan, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And they would be given the authority to subpoena, to hold hearings, to uh, propose whatever or to implement whatever remedy is necessary in an absolute last resort, a new election. Um, and uh, this ideally would be a permanent board. Now, when we have these election crises, there's this ad hoc approach to it. Both 1876 and 2000, we wake up the day after the election and everyone says, what do we do now? And then they cast about. In 1876, they came up with this ad hoc commission, which was partisan and resolved the election in a partisan fashion. In 2000, the United States Supreme Court stopped recounts in a very disputed uh, opinion. So it seems clear to me that rather than relying on these ad hoc approaches that take place in a crisis environment, we have a solution. Uh, we have a process that is stipulated in advance that could rationally resolve these things. Uh, a question that pertains to this, but also just to how the Electoral College itself is chosen. The two-party system seems so baked into the system. Um, if we're going to talk about reforms, and of course the two parties are never going to agree to it, but anyway, doesn't there need to be some reform of both the Electoral College and even a commission that looks at the election that doesn't so bake, it, bake in this duopoly? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think the two-party system is a good idea if you have two healthy parties that maintain their control of the country because they're responsive to the views of the citizens. But I don't think that we have that now. I think we have parties that maintain their control through gerrymandering, through monopolies over the presidential debates, uh, and so forth. So, I, I mean, I fear that's a whole discussion onto itself. Um, but it's the lock that the two parties have on the country right now has arguably reached an unhealthy point. Yeah. I mean, I go back to this quote from George Will in the beginning. I mean, it was designed so. Uh, it was designed so different section of the elites could contend. I've always thought this is like uh, in feudalism where one lord has to rally peasants and the other lord has to rally peasants and they're going to go to war. And whoever has kind of more resources and can give the peasants say, look, I'll take care of your families. If you die, I mean, you can buy off your peasants. 
or you're not going to have your land when you come back if you don't go fight. Now they do it with television dollars, you know, whoever can raise the more dough. And although I, I think Bernie Sanders campaign has kind of thrown a bit of a wrench into that because he's, he's proven you can raise money without the feudal lords, without the lords of finance, I guess is what we should call them now. Uh, and the whole I mean, the system, as we said off the top, is fundamentally undemocratic. And still, maybe there's some some kind of tinkering that would make it a little bit better. Um, so if, if you go at this idea of the review board, how do you make that review board not just a partisan slugfest? Because even if you have one guy who's supposedly independent, uh, and, and, we, and this, uh, we know judges doesn't solve the problem. There was nothing independent about the Supreme Court in the, in the year 2000. That was completely partisan. Right. Um, but, you know, we have judges are appointed by a president and these days only confirmed if the Senate is in the same party of that president. This review board would be selected in a bipartisan fashion and the people on it would be the sort of people who transcend political labels, the, the rare people who are respected by both parties. And I mention a bunch of names in the book. Uh, Colin Powell comes to mind if I had to just throw one name out here to give people an idea of who I'm talking about. And then in addition, I would stipulate that there be members who just as many members who are not Republican or Democratic, um, precisely to A, to protect the interests of third parties, should that be at issue, and B, so that you couldn't simply get one party imposing its will on another or a stalemate because you had an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. So we have to give a lot of thought to the structure of all this. And I propose the actual language of a constitutional amendment in the book. But of course, you know, this is, I'm just starting to get this conversation, I'm trying to get this conversation started. There's, I'm sure, room for tweaking it and amending it and so forth. But it, it shouldn't be impossible to establish a board that is above politics. If the Democrats are successful with the Senate races in Georgia, and I, I, who knows what to believe from the way the pundits and the media are talking, but it's actually looking more possible than not. I got my own little pet theory, which is Trump would prefer the Republicans lose in Georgia because if they win and the, and the Republicans control the Senate, Mitch McConnell becomes at the center stage and Trump goes off to some media thing. Whereas if it's, if it's a fully Democratic controlled thing, then Trump's the leader of the opposition. I, I, this is just my own little speculation. But at any rate. If, not that that's exactly a conspiracy theory, but if you want to get into that sort of uh, political novelist's mindset, notice that the two elections in Georgia, the special elections are on January 5th, one day before the Joint House-Senate Committee meets. And if the Joint House and Senate cannot reach agreements, they're supposed to go back to their bodies. So you could get the two Georgian senators, one way or another, involved in this whole process. And theoretically, it could be important whether there are 50 or 48. But guess what? Even if the two Democrats win and they get 50, who presides over this joint committee? The vice president, who as of January 6th will still be Mike Pence. So there's, there's no way around that one. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe by the end of all this, it's President Pelosi. <laughs> yeah, that, not not completely impossible. Not not totally far fetched. I mean, back I mean, well, this whole thing's because yeah. I was just going to say when whole. COVID was spreading rapidly through the administration, that I'm sure went through some people's minds. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, part of the reason why Trump had to get better so quickly. Uh, uh, all right, we're just fine. I'm, I'm sorry, I was just going to add one bit to your speculation about Trump wanting the Georgia seats to go Democratic. Um, to me, it's not that clear that it makes a huge difference. It would be nice to, for the Democrats to have 50, but unless they get rid of the filibuster, that 50 is not a whole lot better than 49. They're still not going to be able to get most legislation passed. And it's pretty clear that they're not going to be able to get uh, the filibuster eliminated if they get the 50 votes, seeing as Senator Manchin of West Virginia has already said he would not vote to get rid of it. That's just crazy. Manchin, why is Manchin still in the Democratic Party? Of course, that would give the Republicans <laughs> another senator, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't make any difference. But Exactly. Republicans more say less, that about Susan Collins sometimes, but then at the end of the day, I think they're glad she's a Republican. Yeah, I think she winds up with the Republicans sometimes more often than he does with the Democrats. Yeah, you may be right about that. Uh, just one other thing, I guess. It's, if the Democrats ever were to actually take control of the Senate, and actually follow through on some of the promises some leading Democrats have made to give statehood to D.C. and to Puerto Rico. That's what, six more electoral Four. college votes Four. that the Democrats can likely rely on? Uh, I guess more? it's... Well, not the electoral votes. So D.C. would still have the same three. So it would be three more right. from Puerto Rico, but it would be four more senators. Four more senators which is a serious issue. And I think one reason this isn't likely to happen. Uh, anything else you want to add to the, the basic question about the Electoral College? No, I think just bringing this full circle, I would want to emphasize that I don't like the Electoral College. The U.S. election system has some wrinkles. It has some real problems. But in 2020, the problem wasn't the system. The reason we aren't having a transition right now, the reason some of us are still a little bit afraid about how this will all play out is not the system, it's the president. All right, thanks very much for joining us, Al. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis.News podcast. And please don't forget what I said at the beginning. Uh, we have a $10,000 matching grant. So if you go to the top of our webpage and you donate now, uh, you'll like double your donation.